If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about the payoff. How do companies ultimately benefit when they achieve customer-centric maturity? Now, if you're not familiar with the maturity curve, you can find a summary in episode number two and more detail on each stage in episodes four, five, and six. Today, to help me discuss what companies are ultimately achieving and perhaps what they could soon be achieving tomorrow, I've invited a special guest, Professor Pete Fader. Pete is the Francis and Pei Wan Chia Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. But what his title doesn't tell you is that he has many fans and followers who are converts to CLV marketing. Pete, welcome to the show. Allison, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you were drawn to the topic of customer centricity? Because you know, CLV marketing is not something that everybody inherently understands. Yes, indeed. And in fact, I came in kind of through the back door, which is a lot of traditional marketers say, oh, the customer needs to come first, this and that. That's not where I came from. I'm a statistician. I build all these predictive models. Who's going to do what, when, and for how long, and how does it vary across people, and how do, how do these propensities to do things change over time? I'm doing what you know a lot of people would consider the boring stuff. Let's just, just look at the data, see what the patterns are, and see how far we can project it out. And then, finally, after we get all these patterns, to say, so what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had a lot of kind of stunning observations on the so what side that just once you really look at the patterns, instead of just buying into the usual stereotypical notions of how customers behave, that a lot of marketing practice is basically suboptimal and that we really should be celebrating heterogeneity and really understanding the differences across our customers and how they play out over time. And we're leaving a lot of money on the table with the traditional one-size-fits-all marketing that goes along with, with product centricity. So honestly, I kind of got into all the customer-centric stuff more as a way to get people to think about the models and all that. Mm-hmm. But then I realized just how powerful it is and that even if you're not focusing on the models, that these practices really make a difference and folks really should be paying attention to them. Otherwise, they're leaving money on the table, right? That's what we're hearing. Yeah, it's actually scary. If you look at the value of your customers in some kind of you know aggregate, average way versus recognizing the differences from customer to customer, even segment to segment, the differences are really, really big. And so if you're in marketing and you want to take credit for the value of the customers or the increase in the value that you've created, or if you're in finance and you want to sell the company, 
you want to recognize the full value of those customer assets. And it's just shocking to see how badly companies are doing that. And again, it's just, just no excuse. And it's not even that much harder to do it the right way. It's just having a different perspective. Well, that sounds like a pretty good reason for why people should care about customer centricity. Do you think they should, you know, you started in this a long time ago. I think you wrote the book maybe 10 years ago. Is that about right? 10, 11 years uh, ago? Well, it came out around six years ago, but certainly the ideas were brewing a decade ago. Okay. So that was a long time ago, and these patterns, they remain. But I think what's interesting is that in the course of the growth of the internet and the growth of mobile and the growth of social, digital has really changed the power of the customer. Do you think that companies should be caring more about customer centricity today than they did when you started looking at this space? Or is it equally powerful and you just have more signals? I think it's the latter, actually, that I think it's as powerful as ever, but it's harder to ignore. You know, I'm going to take exception with the point you made just before that. That is to say, the changes in customer behavior. This is something that's greatly overstated, greatly mm -hmm. overstated. If you look at basic customer behavior, if you strip away all the kind of nonsense and just say who's buying what, when, and for how long, and so on, the patterns aren't that much different today than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's actually interesting to see how models built even in the you know mid-90s are just as effective today. So the behavior is not different. It's just that we see it. And it's just so much easier to track individuals and to be able to to watch them play out their behavior over time and to tie it to other things like social, mobile, and, and all that. But it all starts with just the flow of transactions. Let's not even worry about that other stuff until we squeeze all the value that we can out of just the transaction history. Mm -hmm. So indeed, the patterns aren't that different, but we just can't ignore them anymore. And the competitive pressure on growth is great as ever, and you just can't achieve it through just let's innovate faster, let's get more efficient. So there's been just more of a not only better technology to enable us to tag and track customers, mm -hmm. but more of a competitive imperative to, uh, to, to like force ourselves to do so. I see. I see. Can you tell us a few stories about companies that have you know, picked up the customer-centric focus and have really run with it? I love that because too often when I talk about this stuff, people say, oh, you're just a professor. You're just this, this ivory tower stuff. Come on. Uh, we're running a real company. It's been so great at so many levels to see some companies kind of from an, an arm's length that I have no particular relationship with that have been starting to make that pivot, others that I have had occasional conversations. So, well, let's get real specific. Uh, no company is better at this stuff and has gone through such an amazing transformation than electronic arts. I love to talk about them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's fun sometimes to talk about the e-commerce firms. They have it easy because they're kind of born with, with all the data. But a firm like Electronic Arts, that's just this you know, old-school, blockbuster-oriented product firm, but the way that they've pivoted around the data, around the customers, the way that their chief analytics officer, Zach Anderson, went from running a team of handful of analytics people and now has over 250. But more importantly, the range of decisions that he has direct impact on, some of which are not at all obvious, has been just a model for every company to follow. Mm -hmm. And then you get companies like Starbucks and Nike, again, companies with these beloved brands that for decades were able to just kind of ride on that brand and the kind of religion around it. 
but starting to wake up and say, you know, our brand is great. Our brand is as strong as ever, but that by itself isn't enough anymore. And we need to start doing some of the tagging and tracking, and we need to start thinking about how our customers are different from each other. And I love what Nike announced recently. Mm-hmm. We're in their new flagship store in New York. They're going to have a members-only floor. But you're not going to be allowed to go on this floor at all unless you have a certain level of status with Nike. Very nice. I think that's amazing. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would have just never happened a number of years ago. And you'd be just kind of, you know, laughed out of business for doing something like that. But now that you have both the ability to identify who those customers are and the need to create some kind of unique experience for them, we're going to see these kinds of things happening more often. We're going to see more companies kind of outdo each other, not just with glitzy experiences and, and fancy ads, but through the ways that they better understand their customers at a granular level and try to leverage it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. Now, I want to call back to two things. One, I love Zach, too. He's amazing, and he's going to be a keynote speaker at our upcoming conference, Customer Centricity Conference, and you can see CustomerCentricityConference.com. You can see all of our speakers, and uh, he will be talking specifically about that story of how he went from you know, an analyst trying to get some traction in an organization and not being at the upper levels to someone who really started driving the way the organization makes decisions. It's a really great story. And the the second thing I want to call back to is when we talk about customer-centric thinking, I think it's important to compare it to what we've talked about in the past, which is product-centric thinking. And one of the things that seems to be happening at this time is that you've told me before is that product-centricity is plateauing. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between product-centric thinking and customer-centric thinking? Yes, indeed. It's so important. We should have probably led with that. Because there's a lot of firms out there that say that they're customer-centric. Again, their customer comes first, but they're not being honest about it. They're just saying, we're thinking ever more about the customer as we push, push, push the product. Now, let's face it. Most companies begin with the product and end with the product. And the, the customers are just the entities out there that kind of create the demand for it but they're not truly at the heart of what the company is doing. So for most companies, it really is all about innovation and efficiency. Let's come up with really great ideas and let's sell the hell out of them. And that sounds a little kind of oversimplified or even crass, but it's true. (laughs) Whereas if we're talking about true customer centricity, we're first of all tagging and tracking our customers. We're actually calculating forward-looking customer lifetime value for each and every one of them mm-hmm. and basically saying, who are the most valuable customers? And then, then we start saying, so now what business should we be in? Once we see who these valuable customers are, what are the products that we should be delivering? Instead of coming up with products that will be kind of big, broad sellers that everyone will buy. Let's disproportionately focus both product development, product delivery, customer service on those better customers. Hmm. Of course, hoping that other customers will continue to buy the products and services as well, but recognizing that they don't have as much invested in us, we shouldn't have quite as much invested in them. Well, that's a really interesting principle of reciprocity, and that brings me to the point of impact. At the beginning, we talked a little bit about the competitive pressure on growth and the fact that the patterns haven't changed. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of impact that companies are getting or you think they can get by using this system? Oh, sure. Because growth has plateaued with product centricity, but the demands for growth are as great as ever. 
And it turns out that we have some low-hanging, delicious fruit by just recognizing <laughs> these differences across customers. So it all comes down to four things. First and foremost, identifying the value of customers at a granular level. And I really do mean that. Let's go back to our friend Zach Anderson. Every single day, he's looking at a billion customers around the world and saying how their CLV is greater or less than it was the day before. Having that kind of discipline, that kind of regularity in using this stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's step one is first being able to do it. But that by itself doesn't create value. So number two is then uh, for those valuable customers, let's find ways to enhance their value. Let's find ways to really help them achieve their full potential in terms of the value of their relationship with us. Let's not only cater our products and services to them, but let's surround them with a variety of other products and services, some of which we make no money on, to try to, again, enhance the value of that relationship. But step three do so in a way that they will happily, willingly share some of that value back with us. The example I love to use is Amazon, that whether it's you, Allison, or anyone listening, mm -hmm. you have no idea what you paid last time you bought something from Amazon. And that's wonderful. That shows the way that they've built just an amazing relationship with the customers, that you know you're getting a reasonably good deal, but you're in it for all kinds of reasons other than price. This is customer-centric marketing. Mm -hmm. So again, it's creating that value, extracting it in a kind of happy, mutually beneficial way from the customers, and very importantly, using the differences between our best customers and our not-as-best customers as a source for new customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. So instead of just going out there and trying to bring in as many customers as cheaply as possible, uh, the kind of the CPA mentality, we want to focus more on the VPA, the value per acquisition, and really invest in the right customers right from the beginning instead of this ridiculous belief that we can train customers to become really good. Uh, that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, that's a fantastic acronym, a little three-letter acronym there, a VPA, Value Per Acquisition, that I don't think I have ever heard a marketer use. So that's a great way to twist the metrics that are usually what I find very quantitative volume metrics. You know, how much volume did we get? to a different basis of what was the value of that volume, right? Yeah, and of course, VPA is no different than CLV. <laughs> it's just that when mm -hmm. we frame it that way as a direct contrast to or even complement with CPA, that I think helps people understand kind of where in the mindset yeah. or on the dashboard it belongs. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm going to say that most of what you ran through there, those four steps sound a lot like what I normally ask people, which is, what should I do next? So I'm going to come back to that question of impact because I think there's a really good case study for connecting the value of the customer portfolio to what Wall Street might value and that this is something marketers don't always think about. You know, as an entrepreneur, I'm trained to think about boards and investors and equity from the get-go, but most people who work inside a company don't think like this. Tell me more about the customer-based corporate valuation angle that you've been pursuing. DBCV. I want everyone to know what those letters stand for. You know, this has been awesome. This has been just, just an amazing chapter, and we're right in the middle of it right now. For years and years, not just me, but a lot of people who just are interested in customer this and that have been saying kind of in a conceptual, aspirational way that, hey, if we could figure out the value of all of our customers and just add all that up, well, that's the value of all the operating assets for the enterprise. And for many companies, that's the value of the whole enterprise. 
And so we'd kind of put that out there just as a way to, you know, wake up and smell the CLVs. But we're been taking it very, very seriously. When I say we, I'll take the back seat to my former PhD student, Dan McCarthy, now a Mm -hmm. professor at Emory, who has made this the focus of his life, both through his dissertation and the, the work that he's doing now at Emory. It's been amazing to look at publicly traded companies. So again, this is not just an ivory tower exercise. And from their own disclosures, project to the number of customers they're going to acquire, how long those customers are going to stay, how many transactions they're going to make, how much they'll spend each time, doing this for real, and then projecting it over long horizons using appropriate discount rates, weighted average cost of capital, to say what are the value of those customer assets, and let's link it up with the presumed value of the firm. So we've done this in a number of cases now. We have two papers, one published, one hopefully about to be and a ton of attention from Wall Street. As an example, we wrote a recent paper where we looked at Wayfair.com and Overstock.com, and I'm happy to talk about all the details, but it was really interesting that Jim Cramer from Mad Money picked up on it in one of his segments this past fall. He was talking about some of the work and the impact that it had on Wayfair, which is, in their case, was rather negative. And he said, you know, what is it that these professors did? He said, they figured out the value of the customers and what the company paid to acquire them. And boom, that did it. And I'm looking at this segment and saying, well, that's kind of obvious. That's kind of dumb. Like, who wouldn't do that? But his point is, in the valuation world, in the finance world, they don't do that. In the finance world, they just look at, you know, a dollar's a dollar. We don't know. We don't care if it's from a new customer or an old one. Isn't that amazing? So it's been, yeah. it's been kind of a wake-up call, both for me, to realize that as a marketer, I can bring a lot to the finance conversation. And, of course, a wake-up call to finance people to recognize, again, that not all dollars are equal. Mm-hmm. So it's been a, a nice kind of collaboration. You know, not to say there aren't people pushing back, but for everyone who is pushing back, there's five others who are saying, tell me more. Okay, so here's the question. At the top of our conversation, we said that the behavioral models really haven't changed over the past 10-ish years since they've been coming up, yet Wall Street has consistently ignored them. What is it that allowed Wall Street to get away with this before and is holding them accountable to it now? Is it simply that the customer has more power or is it something else? Well, I think it it comes back to the growth equation that that everyone's looking like, how are we going to find growth? How are we going to measure it? How are we going to anticipate where it's going to be next? So so part of it is that Wall Street's just looking for kind of the next thing. They don't really care what it is. And I think that they just have an inkling that some of these customer metrics and the the customer data underneath them um, could be a source of bona fide value. You know, the VCs have kind of known this for a while. The VCs have made a bigger deal about having CLV as something to be looked at for companies they're investing in. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a generational thing is my overall answer. That old school Wall Street people, they just never had to think about this stuff. (laughs) They, They would just find other growth opportunities through more traditional metrics. But, you know, the new kids on the block both are looking for new ideas But also they're more open to these ideas that, hey, there could be value in these customer assets in a way that our forefathers would have never even uh, looked for it. So I think that's where the change is going to occur. As much as we've seen rapid changes over the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. it's going to be when kind of today's kids are running the show and they're just going to be looking at customers, valuation and overall strategy very differently. Mm-hmm. Yep. Isn't that true how we're such creatures of habit? The next new thing, growth equations. I love that. 
So Pete, if somebody wants to reach you in the future, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Well, you can tell, everyone can tell, I'm really passionate about this. So my life's an open book. <laughs> so you know, obviously email, faderp.e at wharton.upenn.edu. But I really like to drive people to Twitter, not only you know tweeting and retweeting a lot, but having lots of interesting conversations with others, sometimes agreeing, sometimes disagreeing. I'm really trying to build a community of folks who are either passionate about or at least interested in these ideas of customer centricity. And in that way, I have to give you, Allison, and all of Ambition Data a lot of credit for doing so much work to be kind of spreading the gospel about it uh, and doing more than just talking, but helping companies really achieve it. We love it. You know, it's, it's my entrepreneurial background that helps me feel that at a very personal level. I love to see companies succeed. And it's, it's like you've handed us the keys to the kingdom and just said, here, go make it happen. And that's just been so gratifying. Thank you, Pete. And yep. I have to say, I watched my students and recent alums, same exact thing as you just said. You know, a lot of them would be going to a traditional banking or consulting or product management role. But some of them have been trying out some of these kind of data-driven, customer-centric strategy stuff and come away with that same degree of, wow, this is fun. Wow, I'm so glad I did it. I'm really making a difference and kind of just changing the world. It really is cool to be part of that. And, you know, one day when everyone's customer-centric, it too will become old and boring, but it's still many, many years. There's a long runway uh, where it's going to continue to be exciting. Oh, fantastic. I know that feeling. And I also just want to mention your Twitter handle is very similar. I think you said it was Fader P, which is your Twitter handle. And then you also gave your email. You can also connect with Pete on LinkedIn. But those are, like he said, the Twitter is the best way to reach out to Pete if you want to have a better conversation about CLV. And I think that'd be fun because then we could all participate. That's right. And that really is important because there are a bunch of companies out there that are reinventing the wheel on their own, sometimes one that doesn't roll quite as smoothly. So I think at this point, we need to have a big, broad conversation about what works, what doesn't, uh, what are the barriers we're going to encounter, what are the resources we can bring to the party. Even though I've written a book on customer centricity, I dare say that the book on customer centricity still (laughs) hasn't been written. I think there's still a lot for us to learn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So let's summarize a little bit. First, we talked about why should I care about the outcome of customer centricity. And we talked about the fact that the patterns haven't changed over time. But what has changed is that there's a lot of competitive pressure on growth. You know, helping companies trying to innovate faster, they can't innovate faster. So looking for ways that they can get an edge or the growth edge is kind of the new way of handling marketing, but not just marketing, the entire operation operations of the company. So most of the people who listen to this podcast come at it from the marketing perspective. I find that that is an excellent place to start, but it's not the end of the story by any stretch. And Electronic Arts is a great example of that. Then second, we talked about what kind of impact, actually, we talked about that third, um, so let me switch that around a little bit. The the third thing we talked about was that we we know you can get impact, that Wall Street is starting to pay attention. We talked about customer-based corporate valuation. Now, I will link to the papers that Pete mentioned that he wrote with uh, Dan McCarthy, and these are fantastic papers. They are very academic. So, Pete, if there are maybe a couple links we can include alongside that that are maybe a little more summary level, that might be helpful as well. Maybe yes, even the green team. Dan and I just did a very nice interview. We're just kind of just break it all down. What does it all mean? 
Fantastic. Uh, we'll, we'll share plenty. I think it's really important to get these ideas out there, and we appreciate people's interest. Great, and we'll, we'll link that. And then we talked about what should you do next, and Pete gave us four steps. The first thing is you have to identify the value of the customer. You know, you have to know if the 80-20 rule applies. You have to know your number, so you, you need a starting place. The second step is to find ways to enhance the value of those groups. So once you've identified, you need to get to know them a little bit more and figure out what is it that they find valuable. And then the third step was to take that value and execute on it in a way that people want to share the value back with you. So the example that we talked about was Amazon's trusted relationship, where we trust Amazon to not just sell us on price, but to kind of know the products that are best for us to make good recommendations. And also along the way, we feel that the price is already appropriate. So the fourth step was using differences to bring more customers in. And that's where we talked about heterogeneity, which is a big concept of Pete's. And then this great acronym of value per acquisition, which is changing your denominator to not be just volume, 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 but actually the value that you've acquired, not just in behavior, but in the actual customer level value. Pete, did I miss anything there? That sums it up really well, Allison. And again, I give you so much credit for kind of drawing out a lot of these great points and keeping the conversation going. Wonderful. Pete, thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.